mean, what is she? Good evening, good evening, good evening. It's 6 p.m. on a Wednesday evening. You know, we're almost halfway through the first month of the new year. This is the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. And let me start the show off this evening by having a good cry. (laughs) Why? Jason, take a wild guess why I'm crying. Like a baby. No, I hate the Dallas Cowboys. No, 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 no. Elizabeth Warren's not going to run for president. That's why I'm crying. I mean, look, uh, you know, it's one of those situations where I guess she figures, you know, Hillary Clinton's going to run and she doesn't want to, you know, I guess inject herself into a race against Hillary Clinton. And I got nothing against Hillary Clinton. I really don't. But like Elizabeth Warren. And I mean, even the mainstream media is calling her the Democrats political star, which actually is the kiss of death, if you think about it. But and I'm sure she's got her reasons for not running. I just wish I just wish she would run. Because she's no nonsense. She don't play. And she calls how best to put this, a spade, a spade. And I, I would just be so wonder, wonderful if she ran. But now she says she's not, which is kind of sort of upsetting to me anyway, because we don't get many Elizabeth Warrens who are actually in the frame to make a run for president. The last person, I got to tell you, Jason, the last person that uh, and and this happened to me completely completely by accident in the 2008 presidential sweepstakes. Uh, you know they they give you these online tests. They ask you a bunch of questions about your beliefs, and then they match you up with the person they think would best uh, that 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 you would most likely vote for for president. So guess who I got, Jason? Take a wild guess. Dennis Kucinich. <laughs> You know, now, uh, Barack Obama was who I ended up voting for. But, you know, put my belief systems on a page and I guess throw it into a computer and throw some algorithms on that bad boy. And next thing you know, it was Dennis Kucinich. And I dare say that if the same thing was happening now, Elizabeth Warren would be the person that I would end up feeling as though I wanted to vote for. So, I mean, look, it's one of those things that isn't, may not happen next year unless Hillary decides not to run. But, uh, look, I guess I'll get over it. I still have my lovely wife, <laughs> right? So, uh, and by the way, uh, 
If you want to text me, first of all, you can call at 888-874-4888. I hate to give out a lot of phone numbers, but what the heck? That's the on-air number, 888-884-4888. Now, if you want to text me, and I'll get the text and read it on the air, because it'll come in the form of an email, you can call 917-830-3023. 917-830-3023. We've got two, count them, two guests who are coming up. We're going to talk about Charlie Hebdo from a couple of different perspectives. Um, and I think these are important perspectives for people to hear, because you're not going to hear it just about everywhere else. So when the guests are on or when the guests are done, you can text me. If you can't call, text 917-830-3023. Don't worry, I'll give the numbers out a little bit later on. Charlie Hebdo and the massacre in Paris have dominated the news across essentially all platforms and across all spectrums. Again, as I have said before, after previous atrocities, including, by the way, the killing of the two police officers, uh, police officers here in New York City. These are acts of barbarism. In the name of what? I repeat, in the name of what? Is it like, well, you know, we, we don't like the fact that you depict the Prophet Muhammad, therefore you must die? That's, that's madness. That is utter madness. I don't care what society you live in. I don't care what time you're talking about. To kill someone because your religious beliefs are offended is barbarism. Absolute barbarism. Now, Charlie Hebdo has decided, and for those of you, I'm sure all of you know that it's a satirical magazine that comes out of France. They put out a new issue. With the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, on the cover, shedding a tear. Now, this is something that has caused some controversy. In some places in Paris, vendors reported it had sold out before daybreak. From what I understand, during the course, during the arc of this day in Paris, you can't find a copy of Charlie Hebdo. They're being offered uh, copies that people have procured are being offered on eBay for hundreds of dollars. Well, I, I, I'm, <laughs> hey, Jason, I was about to go on a riff about capitalism and pigs and that sort of thing. But what the heck? Uh, you know, if you can get if you can get hundreds of bucks on eBay, so be it. I think somebody tried to sell it for like on eBay or Amazon or some 500 bucks. 500 big ones. Now, this has, of course, created a bit of a divide between people who are staunch advocates of press freedom and those who defend religious proprieties. Even those who are not advocates of violence, even those who condemn what the slaughterers in Paris did, some of them say, Depicting the Prophet Muhammad on the front page of a serious, uh, satirical magazine offends their religious sensibilities. I have respect for everybody's religion, okay? And we can agree to disagree about whether it offends 
or should offend somebody. I have a great deal of difficulty, quite frankly, saying to somebody whose religion I do not practice, this should not offend you. Okay, I, I understand that. But if that turns out to be the slippery slope to what happened in Paris at Charlie Hebdo and at that kosher market, no, I draw the line. I draw the line absolutely because it's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous, it's ugly, and it has no place in a civilized world. Never mind a civilized Europe, because we're going to get into that a little bit later on with our guests. Uh, Why some terrorism has world leaders locking arms and other terrorism appears to be business as usual. But we'll talk about that. Now, some people say there's a double standard in some European countries where hate speech has been banned, but it's no problem ridiculing Islam. Now, I I, I have to say, um, all religions at some point or another in human history, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but as far as I know, virtually all religions get mocked by someone sometime. All right, Lord knows there have been enough, there have been enough mockings of Christianity. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, what is that, the Catholic League, Jason? They go off all the time when somebody does something they believe offends Catholic, people who practice the Catholic faith. And, and, and people who are offended have every right to, you know, speak up about their offense. There's nothing wrong with that. My sensibilities, my sensibilities, not yours, mine, are toward supporting Charlie Hebdo and this portrait of the Prophet Muhammad. That's my sensibility. That's because I've always been, I'm not a satirical person, but I've always loved satire. One of my favorite magazine covers of all time. Jason, you're probably too young to remember this. But at one time, the National Lampoon put a picture on the front page of a dog and a a hand with a gun to the dog's head. And it said, if you don't buy this magazine, we're going to shoot this dog. Now, I thought that was the greatest magazine cover I had ever seen up until that point. It just shows you I'm a little sick on a certain level. Now I got Obamacare, maybe I can get help. I don't know. But I've always liked satire. Uh, You know, I used to, before they went online totally, I used to read The Onion religiously, all right, because it was whack, and I love whack. So, again, my sensibilities, and and I say this, you know, I have a lot of friends who practice Islam. I have Muslim friends. But my sensibilities are still with Charlie Hebdo on this. Uh, By the way, you know, there's a guy, uh, a comedian, He, too, is a bit provocative. I'm not provocative, but he is. Uh, Diudon Mbala Mbala. He has been detained, had been detained, as an apologist for terrorism. Because he commented on Facebook suggesting sympathy for one of the attackers in Paris. Now, I don't, you know, I'm not here to judge 
whether or not there's any equivalency whatsoever uh, or sympathy that ought be given to any of these attackers. You know, it's amazing to me. They have all of this, uh, you know, fervor about Islam and further fervor about this and that. But they won't show their faces, you know. ISIS and Al-Qaeda and Yemen and this one and the Arabian Peninsula and blah, 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 blah. They don't show their faces at all. At all. Now, maybe they're just trying to hide themselves from the Yankee dogs who might help hunt them down and kill. I don't know. But it seems to me, if you really have the courage of your convictions, you'd let people see your face. You know, uh, and, and that's not to say you agree with what they're doing. I just say, like, if this is what you're what you're trying to stand for, then stand for it. Mess around. Now, one of the byproducts, as I mentioned earlier, of this massacre was the huge uh, peace march last weekend in Paris. And, of course, there was a huge firestorm about the fact that nobody from the Obama administration bothered to show. John Kerry was off someplace. I don't know where the president was. But, I mean, this would sound like something that would be tailor-made for Joe Biden. Isn't that why he's here? (laughs) Isn't that why he's the vice president? But no, he didn't go either. Eric Holder was over there, but he didn't even go. Uh, The White House has acknowledged they messed this up. And they did. They should have sent somebody. But then when you start looking at this from a holistic perspective, Maybe they should send somebody to some of the African countries that have experienced terrorism at the hands of Boko Haram and others. Maybe they ought to lock some arms over there. How many people you feel? How many world leaders from Europe do you think would go to Africa and lock arms against Boko Haram? I'm just asking. And we're going to ask our very special guest who's joining us on the telephone right this very minute. He's the publisher. He is the founder. He is the editor-in-chief of Black Star News. Here's our good friend, Milton Alamani. Milton, how you doing, buddy? Hey, thanks for having me again, man. Hey, man. Hope you're well. Thank you so much, and Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you. Same to you and your family. Now, there are, there are people, and I knew you would be one of them, who have questioned whether or not the response to what happened in Paris was somehow a Eurocentric response. Mm-hmm. And that the, we haven't seen the same kind of response or the nonstop coverage on our cable networks of Boko Haram, although there has been coverage, uh, but not the kind that we saw this past weekend. Is that a legitimate gripe? Absolutely, it is. Uh, because it's important to, uh, to garner world attention over events like this. And in Nigeria's case, it's been continuous. In fact, Boko Haram has now been able to seize uh, considerable territory in Nigeria. Boko Haram is doing in Nigeria what, uh, what uh, ISIS has uh, been uh, reported to be doing in Syria and in Iraq. And it's completely uh, under the radar. It's not uh, given the adequate coverage that it needs. And last week alone, uh, Amnesty, according to Amnesty International, they may have slaughtered up to 2,000 people. 2,000 people. 
2,000 people. It and was I heard not they, in any of the front pages. Now, I, I heard they had made some incursions into, was it Cameroon, too? Cameroon. They're trying to uh, carve out some territory in both that part of Nigeria, which is, uh, uh, which is uh, north and uh, north uh, east, as well as uh, uh, parts of Cameroon, because uh, the, uh, it, it, it overlies over a mountain. And then once you get beyond that mountain, you're into Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And Milton, let me ask you this. Because I, I put this to a couple of people, and here's something they said to me, and I want to get your thoughts. They said, look, the people in Paris were Europeans. They mm-hmm. had a European rally to a European situation. If people are concerned about Boko Haram, then Africans ought to do the same thing that the Europeans did in Paris, maybe go to Lagos or whatever, and get the African heads of state to lock arms and get a million people out on the street against Boko Haram. Is that a legitimate criticism? Absolutely. It's legitimate. We're not letting anybody, anybody off the hook, whether it's European, whether it's African. But you see a lot of the things, uh, here's the irony. Many African leaders actually rush to Europe as well to shed tears, which is fine. Mm-hmm. But hey, if you're going to be shedding tears in, in Paris, you ought to be shedding tears in Lagos or Abuja on behalf of your uh, African sisters and brothers as well. So we're not letting anybody off the hook. African leaders, in fact, the leadership in Nigeria has been very inept in terms of how to deal with Boko Haram. There's part of it that they're they're trying to say, okay, we don't want to show that things are getting out of hand. We can really run our country. But that's crazy. If you need help, you need to help to ask for help. Now, Milton, uh, should uh, Nigeria, for example, ask for help from Europe, from NATO, or from, from any European alliances, given Listen, the commonality always, of experience now. Right. There's always the issue of sovereignty. You want to look like you, you're able to run your country. But uh, many countries around the world need international help. So you go to the, uh, to the United Nations or you go to the African Union. You can go to uh, these uh, international institutions without saying, okay, I can't run my show. So I'm going to have to, uh, you know, run to an individual country like Britain or France and say, hey, I need your help. No, if you don't want to do that, at least go to an international organization. So it would be done in an international auspices. There would be troops coming from, like, if, you, if that's what you need. Mm-hmm. Uh, there could be uh, some coming from the Caribbean countries, some coming from other African countries. And if you need to get some coming from European countries, so be it as well. You can't say that because of my national pride or what have you. I'm going to allow this, uh, this, uh, this uh, Boko Haram outfit to slaughter innocent people, innocent children, innocent women, because it's a different thing. If you are a legitimate uh, guerrilla organization and you have uh, programs, you say we're trying to get rid of this government because it's corrupt and all that, that's a different issue. If you're hitting military targets, but how are you going to be going to these villages and slaughtering innocent civilians that are unarmed? That's completely preposterous. So there's no shame in saying, I can't handle them alone. I need help and go for it and do it. Because this isn't a ragtag army, by the way. They have the most sophisticated weapons. Mm-hmm. How are you going to have a guerrilla army hiding in the bush and they have like armored uh, vehicles? They have these jeeps. They have these uh, uh, huge machine guns. Uh, in fact, they, uh, they, there's a photograph that claims they also have helicopters. This is like a conventional army. And the other question is, who's really funding these guys? I was going to ask you that. I mean, uh, uh, sophisticated weaponry obviously costs money. 
Uh, it costs it, money. Is this international arms trading that's going on here? And and you're right. Where are they getting the funding? As far as they know, they don't uh, own an airport. At least as far as I know, they don't own a port and because you need to bring these things to ships. So there has to be a pipeline somewhere. In fact, I've always been suspicious that there might be some people in government in both Cameroon and Nigeria and other countries that have a role uh, or, or also playing a, a hand in this. These guys don't manufacture their weapons where they're hiding in the bush. So these weapons are coming from somewhere. There's a pipeline to supply them because these vehicles, they, they need fuel as well. Yeah. Where are they getting the fuel? There has to be a pipeline. So, you know, I haven't seen the definitive, comprehensive story on Boko Haram. And obviously, you need to have the resources to be there. We can only analyze and we can critique things that don't seem to add up. And I think a lot of things don't add up. Important point. Milton Alamadi is our guest. He is the founder, publisher, editor-in-chief of Black Star News. Milton, uh... When we talk about, you know, how things get facilitated, all right, which is what we're talking about with weapons in Boko Haram, mm -hmm. how did this woman that they were looking for in Paris manage to slip into Syria? <laughs> how does something like that happen? Uh, you know what? I think uh, there's something going on that uh, they're not uh, telling us yet. I think uh, Turkey is not a neutral party in this conflict. I've written a couple of editorials. Uh, I don't think uh, 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 there's a firewall uh, between, I can't prove it, of course, but I don't believe there's a firewall between Turkey and organizations like ISIS. Uh, really? I believe that, uh, oh, yeah, because uh, Turkey, in fact, I think Turkey would prefer that the uh, Kurds uh, be defeated uh, in, uh, in, uh, in both Syria and in Iraq because they have a huge uh, Kurdish uh, uh, population within Turkey. And they've always been agitating, at least, if not for independence, for autonomy. Mm -hmm. So Turkey is very concerned about that. So Turkey thinks that a powerful Kurdish entity uh, in, in, in both Syria and in Iraq would uh, promote uh, a separatism or even secession in Turkey itself. So my suspicion is that uh, uh, Turkey would rather have ISIS have the upper hand and crush the Kurds so long as ISIS is not operating inside Turkey proper. That's my assessment. So Turkey has not, uh, uh, a lot of these people that are going from uh, Britain, from France, and uh, getting somehow into Syria uh, or Iraq, guess where they're going through? They're all going through Turkey, so they must know something. <laughs> Safe passage, huh? Absolutely. Milton, what do you think it is? that would lead, because uh, there's some Americans that have done this, there are Europeans that have done it mm -hmm. as well, and uh, these organizations have made inroads, obviously, on the continent of Africa. Right. What is the attraction to people, particularly young people, uh, of, of these kinds of organizations that sow such death and destruction in so many places? I mean, can you really be inspired by something that negative? I think there are, uh, personally, I think there are uh, a couple of things, at least I could, the two things. A lot of the uh, uh, people that are, are going there, I don't imagine there are people that have, like, uh, decent jobs that are just saying, you know what, I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to go to uh, join the struggle in, uh, with ISIS in Syria or Iraq. Uh, so that's, uh, that's one part of it. So imagine there are uh, young people, uh, perhaps uh, unemployed, uh, 
uh, very impressionable. That's one part. And then the second part is, uh, as you've seen, they've become very sophisticated on social media. Mm-hmm. Groups like ISIS, groups like Al-Qaeda, groups like Al-Qaeda in the, in, in the Arabian Peninsula, they use social media uh, to recruit uh, these young folks. And what they're, they're, part of what they're doing is they're saying, listen, it's, uh, it's an attack on, uh, on, our, uh, on our Islamic faith. That's what's going on. All these uh, Western powers are ganging up against us. So when they're doing all these bombings, they're actually attacking us and our faith. Uh, so uh, something like the, uh, this magazine in France, uh, because it used to uh, pick the Prophet Muhammad in uh, what they would say a very demeaning ma- manner on the front cover. There was one cover that depicted him as a gay man uh, kissing another gay man. Mm-hmm. I can see groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda exploiting this using that same image and saying, listen, it's not what we're telling you. This is what they're publishing. They're not going to say this is satirical or anything. So they know how to effectively uh, mobilize and use propaganda. And in fact, the French themselves knew the potential danger of some of these covers that uh, Charlie Hebdo, the magazine, was running. In 2006, when they first published the caricature of Muhammad, uh, Prophet Muhammad on the front page, a French minister, I believe was the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who actually urged the magazine, please, please, don't publish this because it might have some consequences down the line. Now, Milton, uh, does that imply that these kinds of covers ought to be censored? Well, now you ask a very serious question because uh, you say who uh, gets to be fined, uh, what is sat- uh, satirical, mm-hmm. uh, what is uh, uh, what is a hate, uh, you know, really hate to hate, hateful depiction. Uh, is this really uh, a political critique, or is this actually an attack on the, on, the, on the Islamic faith? And if you have an environment where, uh, here, here, here's where the problem comes. It's not happening in a vacuum. So when you publish uh, covers like that, and at the same time, you have a major military offensive going on in uh, Syria and Iraq involving ISIS, uh, involving uh, al-Qaeda on one side, and on the other side, involving uh, countries like France, like Britain, like the United States, then you can see how easily they'll be able to depict this as this is one uh, further uh, evidence of their attack against the Islamic faith. So you have to really assess all those variables uh, when you... Uh, uh, it's not a very simplistic question. Is this just uh, freedom of expression? Milton, do you think the West, and I'm using the West in, the, I guess, the most euphemistic term I can imagine. <laughs> uh, do you think the West knows who is funding these different groups around the world? I think so. I think uh, 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 there's been some reports that were never totally followed through in terms of uh, the Saudi funding mm-hmm. uh, from Saudi Arabia. Um, as you know, Saudi Arabia, I think, sells... Is it uh, 10 or 15 million barrels of oil a day? Mm -hmm. Uh, Saudi Arabia is like a a multi-trillion dollar uh, bank. Uh, And it it, it certainly bankrolled what uh, what went down in Libya. And uh, part of the tragedies of of the destruction of the uh, Gaddafi regime in Libya was that all those arms became available and part of it is actually what's fueling a lot of this conflict now, not only in, the, in, in, in North Africa, but even in Syria and, uh, and even in Iraq. 
Qaddafi's uh, uh, military had so much weapons. In fact, I recall there was an article in the Wall Street Journal. They took an aerial picture of uh, some of the weapons that was uh, uh, being stored in an open-type uh, uh, facility in the desert. Uh, it was so far in the desert, you didn't even need a fence for it. <laughs> so they took an aerial photo, and those weapons just went on and on and on, as far as the eyes can see. Milton, uh, if the West knows, could not the West disrupt through whatever hacking needs to be done the day-to-day business of these funders? Couldn't the West do that? Don't we have the technology to do that? Yes, I think it's beginning to happen now. I think... Um, one good uh, thing I've noticed now is that, uh, for example, the uh, Obama administration's uh, their, their language in dealing with Saudi Arabia is becoming firmer now. And part of the problem, part of part of the reason why that is happening, because the U.S. is now one of the leading producers of oil in the world. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. has become less dependent on oil, and as you know, the price of oil has collapsed from one hundred dollars to like forty-five dollars. So that is playing a major role. I think the U.S. is becoming less dependent on oil uh, from countries like Saudi Arabia. And I think uh, uh, the U.S. will become much more firm in terms of uh, not tolerating uh, the Saudis uh, uh, being uh, bankrolling uh, a lot of these violent groups around the world. Milton Alamadi, always great to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Happy New Year once again. Happy New Year to you. We'll talk soon, okay? Thank you. Take care. Take care. Milton Alamadi, publisher, editor-in-chief of Black Star News. You heard what the man said. Uh, he, he lets nobody off the hook. Uh, and, and I think that's a good thing because there are some people who ought be held accountable. Now, we're going to a second guest momentarily. He is the executive director of Care Chicago. And he wrote a really interesting piece. We're going to stay on... Charlie Hebdo and Boko Haram. He wrote a piece called Charlie Hebdo, Boko Haram, and three uncomfortable questions. You don't want to miss this. Jason, we're going to take a quick musical break. All right, bet. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
We're back. 29 minutes before the hour, 7 o'clock. Again, you can call us at 888-874-4888, 888-874-4888, or you can text text me, excuse me, text me at 917-830-3023. That will come on my phone as a form of email, and uh, we'll get right to it and read it on the air. Right now, it's a pleasure to welcome to our microphones the... Executive Director of Care Chicago, he's written a very, very provocative and I think brilliant piece called Charlie Hebdo, Boko Haram, and Three Uncomfortable Questions. He is Ahmed Rehab. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on the uh, program. Thank you so much for joining us. So tell me, what, what, uh, what, since these are uncomfortable questions, what provoked you to write this piece? Essentially wondering about the genuineness that we have or may not have in how we confront the situation in Paris um, with the 24-hour news cycle and everybody and their mother jumping on to pine on it. Um, Obviously, it is a tragedy that should concern us all, the tragedy being the taking of innocent lives in this act of terrorism. But if that were the case and that were the case alone, then why not in other situations in which also innocent lives were taken, such as in the situation with the the Norway massacre, um, the situation just the same day in Yemen by the same perpetrator, al-Qaeda of Yemen, 37 people died there, or the situation in Nigeria where 2,000 innocent people were killed um, just a a few days later. Yeah, yeah, Boko Haram, for sure. Now, uh, and we had a guest on just before you, and I'm going to pose the same question to you that I did to him, because I I talked to some people about this, and what they said was, well, what happened with that rally in Paris was a European rally. It was a group of of European leaders, although there were some from Africa that came to. Um, And if people want to protest what Boko Haram's doing, then they ought to get... Uh, the leaders of the African countries to come together in Lagos or come together in Cameroon or wherever and hold a similar rally uh, in in terms of the problems on the continent of Africa. And Africans ought to be the genesis of that. Is that an imprecise or incorrect response? Well, it doesn't really address my questions because my issue is not so much with the rally, which I see to be justified. Mm. And I agree that this happened in France and the the French are shaken up by it and they have every right and indeed a right to to go out and protest it in in the silent, dignified manner that he did to register a point that we will not be defeated by terrorism and that freedom of speech matters to us. Now, what I was really talking about more was media coverage, mm-hmm. uh, global networks, and I looked at CNN as sort of an example of that, the flag bearer of that. Um, CNN is not a French um, news agency, and while it is right to cover the story, the 24-7 news cycle, in which it essentially covered every angle of it, was not was not the same situation. I mean, it, it wasn't the same coverage when other inc- similar incidents occurred, and I was just asking why. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that they ought to have less attention or give less attention to what happened in Paris. But perhaps what I'm saying is they ought to have given the same attention to other similar situations. And if not, then my simple question is why? You know, what's interesting about the piece you wrote, too, is that you talked about the situation in Norway, where uh, 77 people lost their lives. And and I'm not sure most people even remember that, even though it was, what, four years ago? Yep. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you include Norway? Well, I started to look at the identities of the perpetrators and the victims as one clue as to what makes a story a 24-hour news cycle and what doesn't. That seemed to be where, that seemed to be the fact, the main factor. So, in the instance of Yemen, uh, where uh, 37 people were killed by a terrorist attack the same day as the Charlie Hebdo massacre. The 37 were of Yemeni background. Mm -hmm. They were Muslim Arabs. And one thing most people don't understand is that the majority victims of terrorism are Muslims. Therefore, terrorism is not representative of Islam, but rather it's a scourge upon Islam, and Islam is its first and primary victim. Mm -hmm. So when I condemn terrorism, not doing it to get a pat on the back from someone else, but rather because as a Muslim, it actually makes me more you know, uh, wanting to condemn terrorism than anybody else. Wait a minute, let me stop you there for a second, because I'm not sure that most Americans understand the dynamic that you just uh, that you just articulated, that most victims of terror are, in fact, Muslims. Why do you think so few people here realize that? Or am I wrong? I think very few people realize it because it goes back to the answer I was about to give to the question that preceded, and that is the narratives that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I'll get to, to, to that question in a second, but to continue with why Norway. So you look at the identity of the perpetrators and the victims. So in the case of Yemen, it was Muslim Arabs who were killed. It wasn't, had it been French or, or American expats, I presume, CNN would have had a very different reaction and a very different emphasis of coverage. Uh, okay. Now, in the case of the Boko Haram killings, 2,000 people in Nigeria, had they been French or American or German or Italian, I think CNN also would have given it a lot more due attention. And why Norway? Well, because in this instance, it wasn't so much the victim's identity that I was looking at, but the perpetrator's identity. In this instance, it was a white Christian terrorist who massacred 73 children, essentially, and injured 319. And my question was, had he been an Arab Muslim, let's say, would the coverage have changed? Would the story have stuck around for longer? So essentially, the narrative is this, the narrative that the media tends to kind of embrace, that terrorism is Muslim, essentially Arab or African or whatever, against, you know, white, Christian, European or American or whatever. And when in any instance of terrorism that falls outside of that narrative, it is not as important because it doesn't feed that narrative that we are pre-programmed to jump on and perpetuate. It just falls outside of our purview and our radar. And we may talk about it and mention it. I'm not saying there's zero coverage, but it's not nearly as important because it just it kind of shakes that narrative and it confuses some people in, out there who want to, you know, stick to that narrative. You know, it's really, really interesting what you're saying. And I wonder, and by the way, our guest, for those of you who are just joining us, Ahmed Rehab, executive director of CARE Chicago. Um, If you were to say this to the the gatekeepers and decision makers at these networks, you know they're going to, you know, deny it. Some would take umbrage, maybe some wouldn't. But do you think they realize that their coverage is somewhat skewed around the parameters you just described? In my article, I propose that this may very well be inadvertent, but it's problematic nonetheless, because this sort of pervasive, um, sort of timid acceptance of this narrative may very well be subconscious, but it's problematic. And here's why, and here's my conclusion. If we are truly 
to rise up against this problem that is terrorism. We will need to look at it as a problem as uh, you know in its in its very nature as a tactic that is employed by individuals groups or states rather than as an issue of identity politics that then draws us into the fake divide of muslims versus the west or the east versus the west or browns versus whites or blacks versus whites or any of the, those identity polit- political issues it is about extremists who look to this tactic and that's what it is in order to well first the reason why they do that is because they recognize they're much weaker logistically and in terms of military capability and everything else and so they look to this tactic because for them it registers the shock and awe that a real military strike would you know uh, incur um, but with much less resources uh, because they don't have much resources they can achieve the same shock and awe that will then generate a sense of their awesomeness or strength that it far exceeds their capacity. And in doing so, they force themselves onto the scene as players to be contended with and to be dealt with. And so it's, it's the weak in the, in, in the um, essentially groups who are obviously with, with whack, wacky ideologies, but wanting to rise up far and above and beyond their capacity in order to deal with what they see as a very formidable opponent, the Western military agencies. Elbowing their way onto the world stage, then. And forcing us to contend with that. And I mean, if you look, for example, at the reason why they did this in France. So in France, al-Qaeda is virtually irrelevant. The Muslim community there, for those that don't know, a lot of them are secular. They're more interested in rap and rye and, uh, you know, <laughs> clubbing and whatever else. And those who are religious, and there are many, are smart enough and religious enough to know that al-Qaeda and ISIS and those groups are not only um, not representative of Islam, but are very much anti-Islamic in their rhetoric, in their behavior, and in the consequences of what they do. Now, al-Qaeda wants to crack through that problem and become relevant again. So what it does is an act of terrorism that in of itself doesn't achieve much. I mean, 17 people died. Not to belittle that, I mean, it's obviously each human life matters as much as humanity itself, but yes. from the perspective of a terrorist, 17 is not going to achieve much. However, the aftermath is what they're going for, which is exactly what we saw. You know, the significance of this act that forces the world to talk about it and, con- and contend with them as a result of it is what they're going for. In doing so, what they hope is to create a backlash in which... You know, the scared and terrified and, you know, in a sort of knee-jerk reaction type of way, uh, French uh, public or American public, in the case of 9-11 or, or otherwise, to sort of untangle itself, to untangle its own values, uh, repress its minority populations, uh, deem them uh, guilty by extension, this sort of community culpability, which Islamophobes and the far right tend to always jump on. They hope for that to happen. And then they come back and say, look, you see, there is a clash of civilizations. Now can we recruit you? Now will you join us? Now do you realize that you're hated and fought and, 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 and sort of oppressed and all of that? So that's how they try to become relevant again. That's the whole point of it. So it's not just the act, but the aftermath. And that's where we need to, to be vigilant, is to not essentially do the work for them. Wow, you know, what you said, it was just incredibly deep. I, it never dawned on me that they're looking for the backlash that they're looking for politicians who say Muslims shouldn't be allowed in this country, or they're looking for people who might attack a group of Sikhs because they thought they were Muslim, 
or some of the other things that haven't I'm not making this stuff up. This stuff has in fact taken place here. And it becomes a recruitment tool, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Let me put it another way. What we are facing is not so much a clash of civilizations, this fake line in the sand that puts, you know, Muslims on one side and, you know, the West on the other side. I mean, where would Muhammad Ali fit in this or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar or someone like me, you know, both Islam and the West and, mm-hmm. you know, in our identities and in our lives, both have meshed beautifully. Um, this isn't about that. This, this is about the reality of the situation is there is an extreme on one side in the terrorists and the ideologues from, from within the Muslim, you know, world, um, like Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, etc. And there's an extreme on the other side, the neo-fascists, uh, the far-right, uh, the Islamophobes. Both extremes actually come from the same ideology of extremism, which is they require basically the other in order to succeed. So the Islamophobes, I would venture to say privately, are ecstatic when an act of terrorism occurs because that makes them valuable again in the sense it validates their worldview they come out and say we told you islam is the problem muslims are you know these these radical individuals who are here to destroy the west and freedom of speech and etc cetera, etc cetera. and so for them it validates and, and and creates value for their rhetoric and their and what capacity they have on the flip side of things like i told you earlier the terrorists almost rejoice when there's a backlash by the islamophobes and the radical right and you know, those types of groups, because it validates their position that, see, you're under attack, and we are your protectors. So both of these extremes need each other in order to survive. Both are almost rooting for the other to up the ante so they can make their claims of importance to the public. We, me, you, and everybody else, listeners, are, you know, stuck in the middle between these two extremes, often watching them dominate the headlines while, while our voices are drowned out. It's time that this middle rises up and pushes both extreme out. We don't want these radicals to run our world and to define who we are vis-a-vis one another and for us to keep falling into this mindlessly. You know, what, you, what scared me about what you just said is that we have some people, and I'm not naming any names, but we have some people who revel in creating and demonizing the other who aspire to become president of this country. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say who they are, <laughs> but I got to say, you know, uh, uh, it, it's not something that is a figment of anybody's imagination, mm-hmm. least of all mine. I'm an old man. I've been around for a long time. I've seen this stuff before. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's political hay to be made, political capital to be gained by exploiting people's fears of the other, whoever the other may end up being. It's, it, it's suffused. It's part of America's DNA almost. But notice how, I mean, there is, there is a demon here, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, the demon on one side is the terrorists, on the other it's the you know, neo-fascists and the, and, and the racists and the you know, Islamophobes, those who subscribe to these radical ideologies. We don't want to demonize any, you know, those in the middle. Oh, no, no, right? not at all, not at all. I wasn't yeah. talking about anybody in the middle. You know, and I agree with that. But my point is this, though. Those on either extreme try to speak... For one half of the middle, so Al Qaeda and ISIS will try, you know, attempt to speak for Muslims, let's say, and then you'll have these Islamophobes pretending to be the defenders of freedom and Western values. They don't—they're not honest enough to come out and say this is our ideology and this is who we are and so what we represent. They speak for you, and they speak for me, and that's where we need to come out and say enough is enough. You do not represent us. 
I will not, as a result of, of al-Qaeda, ever identify the West, quote-unquote, or America, quote-unquote, or France as a great Satan, or as, you know, haters of the Prophet Muhammad, or, you know, anti-Muslim, and I will not buy into that. And likewise, those who are Christian or Jewish or atheist or whatever in, in the West ought to be careful to not fall to the message of the Rush Limbaugh's and the Bill O'Reilly's and the Sean Hannity's and the you know, Islamophobic bloggers, that Islam is the threat and the Muslims who live within us are the threat and that we represent freedom of speech and free values in the West and all of that. No, they represent the radical right, and we in the middle are of the same world, the pluralistic, diverse, coexistent world. Final quick question. Would you, had you been publishing Charlie Hebdo, have put the Prophet Muhammad, after what's happened, on the front cover? Well, I, I wouldn't have put him in any uh, case, um, I, I, you know, as a Muslim who, who uh, disagrees with these, uh, um, well, they're satirical, I understand that, but, but essentially offensive depictions. But nonetheless, I'm one of those Muslims, and there are many, who believes in the right of Charlie Hebdo to publish these cartoons, even if I may find them problematic. Now, in regards to them putting it after the after the uh, the terror attack, I actually expect that. I mean, not only do I, not only is it not surprising, but I would have been surprised had they not. Really? They are now in a position where they need to double down on that which they were doing that caused the terrorists to strike. Otherwise, risk capitulating to the message of violence and to the strong arming by terrorists. Ahmed Rehab, thank you so much for joining us this evening, and we hope we can call on your expertise again in the future. This has been a really, really great discussion. I really enjoyed it. Anytime. Thank you so much for engaging me on it. All right. You take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ahmed Rehab, he is executive director of CARE Chicago. Now, Jason, you notice I kept him a little late, right? But uh, you know, I still got a couple of more stories to share, uh, and we'll go through them like real fast in a hurry. First of all, uh, did I mention last week about James Risen? Uh, from the New York Times. James Risen uh, was called to testify in a leak case, uh, trial of Jeffrey Sterling, a former CIA officer who was uh, charged with providing Risen with details about a botched operation in Iran that was intended to, to disrupt Iran's nuclear program. James Risen went to court and cooperated not one little bit. And now, as it turns out, lawyers said, that he will not be called to testify at that leak trial. And uh, that's good news. By the way, he's a, a two-time uh, Pulitzer Prize winner. Doesn't mean all that much in terms of what he did. But he had guts. And not every Pulitzer Prize winner possibly would have the same level of intestinal fortitude. So the slowdown that was, was not a slowdown that turned out to be a slowdown is no longer a slowdown. You follow that, Jason? <laughs> the cops, uh, you know, slowed down. The administration said, oh, no, no, no. Hey, slow down? What slow down? Then somebody turned up $46 million in the red or case of the shorts because they're not collecting all the summonses and the crap that they usually collect off hardworking New Yorkers. So then they said, get back to work. And they did. Uh, they're not back up to where they were before the slowdown, which is now a slowdown. Even the papers call it a slowdown. But they're working on it. So uh, those of you who thought you had a London holiday from summonses for double parking and not doing what you were supposed to do or, you know, illegally parking in front of a hydrant or whatever, 
spitting on the sidewalk, not cleaning up in front of your business. Well, they're back to it again. By the way, you can text me at 917-830-3023. If you have any uh, uh, comments on what our last two guests, Milton Alamadi and Ahmed Rehab, had to say about Charlie Hebdo and Boko Haram and the media coverage and all that, 917-830-3023, or you can call in. I'll put you on the air, 888-874-4888. Ah, okay, well, let's do this. Michael S.W. from the borough of the Bronx. How you doing, buddy? Hey, good, buddy. How you doing? Good. Happy New Year, man. Happy New Year. All the best to you and everybody. You too. Yeah. I wanted to comment on uh, one of the stories you just spoke of regarding the NYPD and the slow down and this and slow down and that. First, let's make clear that whatever tickets that they're going to write, they better doggone make sure it's legitimate. No false tickets or trying to meet quotes or anything like that. The NYPD doesn't do false tickets, Michael. <laughs> well, I'm just stating for the record, good buddy. I got you. Know? <laughs> but the main thing is, is that I know you and I had this discussion regarding the PBA president, Pat Lynch. And oh, I'm getting to him. Huh? I'm getting to him because he's in trouble. He's in more trouble than most people think. Absolutely. And I, uh, and you remember me saying, Mark, that he's got to stop this because he's hurting the people. He's even hurting the police officers. And a lot of stuff is pretty much um, illegal what he's doing. It's illegal to incite tension. It's illegal to incite violence. And pretty much now we hear that um, he could be in trouble for violating the Taylor Law and I said time and again that he encourages police officers to follow his lead. I mean, it's bad enough that you got cops turning their backs on Mayor de Blasio at a funeral, for heaven's sake. I don't care if you are outside. The thing is, if you're there for a funeral, you're there to be paying respects to your fallen comrades. To the fallen comrades. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Michael, we've got to leave it there because i I okay. got I, I to run. I, I'm almost out of time because I had two but guests. But he's now. in deep doo-doo. Let's put it that way. All right, man. Thanks a lot for calling. The reason why he's in deep doo-doo is because some of his own are turning on him. Uh, that's part of his big problem, you know. Uh, apparently, there was a screaming match uh, uh, at a meeting of PBA union delegates when insurgent members blasted Pat Lynch for demanding an apology from Mayor de Blasio instead of concentrating on serious business, like the safety of police officers. Now, I told you all a few weeks ago that there were published reports that Pat Lynch didn't face any opposition for his reelection as PBA president. He will be running, I believe it's in June. Well, it looks like his actions have created an opposition for him. Uh, you know, the best laid plans of mice and men, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's going to be something that bears a great deal of watching, a great deal of scrutiny. Because if Pat Lynch is in trouble for his conduct over this, then maybe there's some stuff that people ought to seriously think about when it comes to uh, how to police interact with government officials, from the commissioner to the mayor Etc. Now, uh, here's one that's interesting, Jason. George Zimmerman. You remember him? Trayvon Martin shot him, killed him, acquitted. Well, he hasn't really been able to stay out of trouble ever since. He allegedly threw a wine bottle 
at a woman he was going out with and broke her phone during a late-night row over a piece of art and the fact that the woman was threatening to break up with him. <laughs> he, he doesn't take rejection well, does George Zimmerman. The woman told cops Zimmerman is a psychopath that she regretted hooking up with. Take a number, sister. <laughs> anyway, uh, this is what I find interesting about George Zimmerman. Jason, did you know that he sold a piece of his alleged artwork for more than $100,000? Proving once again that crime does in fact pay? God, how could that happen? How could that happen? All right, here's another story that's a little strange. John Boehner's bartender planned to poison him at an Ohio country club. Now, first of all, what in the deuce is the Speaker of the House doing with a bartender? John Boehner's bartender? It's like what? It's like saying, you know, Eric Cantor's weed dealer or something. Doesn't make any sense to me, but that's how they headlined it. John Boehner's bartender wanted to poison him. His name was Michael Robert Hoyt. He sounds a little doodally, and he had uh, a, a, a fairly substantial amount of sophisticated weaponry. How do people with mental problems get weapons? Question for another day. Our final. To the ridiculous story. Jason, you're going to want to hear this. Mike Huckabee, you remember him? Ran for president, didn't win. We have no Huckabee administration. Went to TV, did this and that and the other, just ran. And now he's talking about running again. So what does he think he's going to run on? Ragging on the Obamas because the kids listen to Beyonce, which he says are, uh, uh, her, her lyrics are, Obnoxious and toxic mental poison. That's what Huckabee says. He doubled down telling People magazine he doesn't how, understand how the Obamas can be excellent and exemplary parents in many ways, but so lacking in others. Now, Jason, take a wild guess who Mike Huckabee's boon coon buddy is in the music business. That he, has, he feels free to rag on the Obamas over Beyonce. You know who his boy is? Ted freaking Nugent, <laughs> okay, <laughs> a guy who supported apartheid, who talked about having sex to a 13-year-old girl, dropped the N-word on more than one occasion. But the Nuge is cool. The Motor City Madman is cool with Mike Huckabee. Mike Huckabee called him an outspoken rocker, a political commentator, a patriot, and a friend. And you, you worried about the Obamas listening to Beyonce? You worried about crazy in love? <laughs> and you got Ted Nugent? Well, the first time I got it, I was just 10 years old. I got it from some kitty next door. And I went to see the doctor, and he gave me the cure? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm worried about Beyonce when my boy is Ted Nugent. All right? I, I'm just saying. And this is to the ridiculous. Because there's no other way to put that. And... The, what, what's really ridiculous is that this clown thinks he can be president of the United States with this. Yo, Mike, good luck with that. Time for me to go. We're out of here. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld for his engineering exposés. Stay tuned for all the great programming right here on the Progressive Radio Network. We are back with you tomorrow. Not tomorrow. <laughs> next Wednesday. I'm getting ahead of myself here. We'll be back with you next Wednesday live at 6 p.m. For the Mark Riley Show, I am Mark Riley. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great evening and a better week ahead.